Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. Welcome back to the Sports Media Walk podcast. This is John Lewis along with Drew Lerner. Today we'll be talking about the latest sports media news. But first, don't forget to subscribe to the Sports Media Walk podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anywhere you get podcasts. All right, let's dive on into the first topic of the day. The MLB All-Star festivities. Today, we're taping on Tuesday, is the All-Star game. Last night was the Home Run Derby. Viewership for the Home Run Derby, the lowest in five years. 6.1 million. The reality of the matter is that baseball is affected by, you know, some of the stars not being there. No Otani, for example, that's a big deal. Pete Alonso did participate, but he was done relatively early. That's another factor. Vladimir, uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. won, but he plays for the Toronto Blue Jays. Obviously, we know Toronto does not count to a U.S. TV ratings. We also know that the baseball audience is a very uh provincial audience they're not going to tune in for everybody they're going to tune in primarily for their team i'm sure the tune in in toronto was great but it doesn't help espn out at all so uh, least watched home run derby in five years but realistically you know if your name isn't clay travis the rest of us recognize that at this point we're not talking about you know five years ago 10 years ago 20 years ago really what we're talking about is are you doing better than anything else on tv today And the Home Run Derby, most watched show of the night. The second most watched show of the night on Monday was The Price is Right at Night. That had 3.7 million on CBS, right? So the reality of the matter is, if you're ESPN, you dominate the night on TV with the Home Run Derby. Yeah, the numbers were probably a lot better, you know, 20 years ago. I say probably, I could easily look it up and say for sure, but I'm... I don't feel like doing that right now, but I can take a wild guess and assume back in 1998, I think it was like 9 million or something like that. And, you know, it'd be great to get back to that 9 million, you know, point, but it really doesn't matter. I'll put it this way. If you have 9 million viewers in 1998 on a night when reruns of Seinfeld are getting 14 million, maybe it's better to get 6 million in 2023 on a night when nothing else on TV has even 4 million. So I think if you're the Derby, if you're Major League Baseball, if you're ESPN, you feel good, even with that five-year low. Uh, Drew, I'll go ahead and bring you in. Well, John, you know, I'm, I I can say anecdotally, I'm, I'm sure pretty much the whole city of Baltimore was tuned in. You know, this is probably their biggest moment on the national stage in quite some time watching uh, their boy Adley Rushman uh, bat switch hitter in the home run derby, which I don't think has ever been done before. But I, I will say this, and you're right about putting things in perspective here. Um, like six million for the Derby, honestly, it seemed seemed pretty high to me. I didn't know it was still getting that many viewers, um, even even in this uh, era of of television viewing. But um, it kind of puts into perspective, you know, how successful the MLB All Star Weekend is as a whole compared to the other other league all-star games right i mean lb does have something going here people like watching home runs i guess even if it is glorified batting practice i don't know it's not for me but uh, i'll 
I'll give it credit. Well, you know, the home run derby was one of those things that back 15, 20 years ago, ESPN made it feel so big. People complain about Chris Berman. You know, the Berman thing is very interesting. I don't blame anyone for not loving Chris Berman. I wasn't ever a big fan of Chris Berman. I still remember after the Malice at the Palace, Berman was doing his little top 10. He used to do a top 10 on SportsCenter every week. And he, he said something to the effect of re- referencing the malice. Uh, that's why we don't show that sport in our top 10. And I'm like, you cover, you cover football for a living. You know, the high horse is a little unmerited. But uh, look, the reality of the matter is Berman, for all of his faults, I mean, he was a lot like Stuart Scott. They're actually peas, two peas in the same pot where it was so fashionable to hate on those two specific people. Everyone memory holds how much Stuart Scott was like always being criticized in the blogosphere, including by me. I used to criticize Stuart Scott all the time. And you never know what you have until it's gone. Obviously with Stuart in a very real way, but also with Berman, where it's like, you know what? Berman, he brought something and he went over the top a lot. Sometimes he would make it more about himself than the event he was covering. And I get why people didn't like him there. But man, his absence, I think, definitely makes it feel less big than it did when he was there. Yeah, you bring up a good point. I mean, I don't even know who called the Derby this year. I know they had two broadcasts, um, ESPN and ESPN2. Um, they, they changed the format recently. Is that, is that right? Do I have that right? I think so. I mean, I'll be completely honest. I had the Derby on for all three hours and uh, I don't remember any of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible that you know, over a three hour window, actually, that they can maintain six million because yeah, it really is. Yeah. You know, it's that's a lot of viewers. Yeah. It, it's and it's the same thing over and over. I mean, that's that is know, a quality. But I was going to say six million viewers is a quality LCS audience. Oh, we get to one, October. 100%. Yeah, yeah, you're not you're not guaranteed to get 6 million viewers for a league championship series game unless it's game 7. No, exactly. So, I mean, MLB has nothing to be ashamed of uh, even with the 5-year low. All-Star game is tonight. Uh we will have some of the bigger draws in in baseball um available playing tonight. Do you have any viewership predictions for tonight's game? Well, I think it'll be the least watched. Uh, I think it'll be a record low. I think it'll be a record low for the All-Star game uh, easily, comfortably. And I think it'll still be the highest audience of any All-Star game in in sports. I think last year was a record low, 7.5 million. This year, I'm going to say 6.6, 6.7 million. A pretty steep drop, honestly, but still better than the Pro Bowl, way better than the NBA All-Star game. Everyone remembers, or at least I'm, I'm sure some people remember the NBA All-Star game under 5 million this year. I don't know if the MLB game will will have the bottom drop out like that. I don't think it will because the Derby did well enough. I mean, the Derby, the All-Star game always outrates the Derby. I don't think this will be the year when that changes. So 6.1 million is probably the floor, uh, but I do think it'll be a comfortable record low. Baseball's had success with their kind of one-off special events. I mean, obviously the All-Star Game's got a history of rating success, but, you know, you have the London Series this year. Uh, you know, the Field of Dreams game last year did very well. Um, they they have been, uh, you know, getting creative and trying to make more of these tentpole events. So 
um, there is a little bit more interest throughout the regular season. And I think, uh, I think they've done well with that. Well, everybody, uh, you know, everybody is getting creative. NASCAR was probably the least creative sport in the country for years. They never did anything interesting. And then the last couple of years, they've been, you know, going for it. Everyone has to go for it. That's why the in-season tournament in the NBA is going to happen. That's what motivated all those outdoor games in hockey. You know, even the Pro Bowl changing from an actual game to this weird assemblage of, you know, I didn't even know what you would call it. All of that is motivated by the fact that you you can't stay the course anymore. The audience isn't there anymore for anything except for pro football. And so you have to get creative. You got to figure out things that, you know, have a little bit of novelty to them. For the All-Star game, maybe that's putting the All-Star game in London or at the Field of Dreams or something, you know? You don't like that? Not in London. I mean, there's cities that have been begging to have the All-Star game for 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, it hasn't been in Seattle in 22 years, right? So um, there's there's too many markets that are starved for something like that um, in America to put it in London. But in any case, uh, you mentioned the NBA, and I think that's a good transition. We'll we'll move on because that's kind of the second biggest ratings story in a light ratings week. Um, Victor Wembanyama's summer league debut on Friday, 1.38 million on ESPN, the second most watched summer league game of all time. Um, it seems like he might turn the Spurs into a bit of a ratings draw. Uh, do you think this is indicative of what could happen once the regular season comes around? I do. I think uh, there, there's a novelty there. San Antonio, you know, the Spurs are not necessarily ratings poison on their own. It took, you know, having Tim Duncan, Parker, and Ginobili. Those three guys, with all due respect, some of the greatest players of all time, one of the greatest big threes in, in NBA history, that was a bad combo from a ratings perspective. David Robinson and Dennis Rodman, that was all right. NBC was able to, you know, do something with that in the mid-90s. And if you look back at the ratings from the mid-90s, Rocket Spurs, Conference Final 95, that did pretty well. I don't think anyone was complaining in the league office about that. So if you have the right, the right person, and when Benyama, you know, he's kind of a unicorn, it's curiosity. It's not a personality thing with him. I don't really think he has shown much of a personality it's the fact that we've never seen a player who looks quite like him on the court so you know uh, that curiosity level i would put them on opening night if i was the nba have him open up at denver make that a big event because it's it's not really going to be a big event the nuggets don't don't draw that way so that little two or three week uh, uh, period before the in-season tournament i would put Wembenyama and the spurs on a few times uh, because that curiosity is going to lead to some pretty nice numbers early, assuming he plays. Because, you know, the largest summer league audience on record was Zion's first game. And uh, Zion had all the hype. Zion had more hype than Wembenyama. That's one of the things that makes you kind of roll your eyes when you hear uh, Adrian Wojnarowski suggest that, you know, Wembenyama's the most hyped prospect ever. Not only is he not as hyped as LeBron, he's not as hyped as Zion. Zion had considerably more hype. Uh, and uh, if he had not gotten hurt, imagine how things would have gone if Zion had just been healthy at all in his career, but especially that first year when the hype was, was, was highest. So uh, as long as he's healthy, you know, put, put a lot of Spurs games that first couple of weeks of the season. 
Yeah, why not? I mean, you, you do have to consider, John, that uh, you know, Zion didn't have the the Britney Spears bump either that that one Benyama was fortunate enough to get. So that that could have helped his summer league ratings. But uh, <laughs> in all seriousness, um, I, I do think it is it is wise for them to to put him in a few national windows prior to the the midseason tournament. And hey, if he actually comes out and he performs well against NBA talent, that could really light a fire. Yeah. And you know, the other thing too, uh, you got to be careful. Pop loves to rest players during national TV games. And the, the stakes are higher now because nobody wants to see the rest of the San Antonio Spurs. So any national TV game where Popovich rests Wembenyama is a disaster, right? I mean, no offense to Jeremy Sohan, who seems like an interesting guy. People are not going to tune in for the Spurs without him. If he's caught resting Wembenyama in the first two weeks of the season, we got something else to worry about. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about that midseason tournament, John. The the NBA last week announced the format for for the midseason tournament. It'll take kind of a a World Cup style format, starting with a group stage, ending in a knockout stage. We don't know the exact matchups yet, but we know the calendar dates. Um, was there anything notable that you saw out of that, that announcement? Well, you know, I don't love the time of year. I think it'd be a lot smarter to have the in-season tournament. Maybe it begins after Christmas, right? But more importantly, it needs to end that week in February between the Super Bowl and the NBA All-Star Game. That's a great, you know, a great launch pad because the day after the Super Bowl is really the beginning of people paying attention to everything else going on in sports outside of the NFL. And it's also not like a huge week for the NBA. There's not, you know, there's, there's not a lot of event programming for the NBA in that week. I would put um, the semifinals on maybe the Tuesday after the Super Bowl. And then the final could be on the Thursday before the All-Star game. This is all in the same week, obviously. They're, they're only a week apart now. And uh, that would allow you to kind of get a nice little springboard for the second part of the season. And instead of having to go straight from the in-season tournament to more regular season games, the participating teams then get a full week off. Obviously, you know, there'll be... Uh, the all-star festivities, but still that's not really, that doesn't really count. So plus they're already going to be in Vegas anyway. So, you know, uh, some of them are going to stay there for the entire all-star break, which uh, they can, they can have one of those Rodman style uh, runs there. But the reality of the matter is that for the NBA, the way it is set up, is fine. Uh, I don't love it. I don't think it's the optimal time of year. Uh, I think it's happening too soon in the season, but I mean, I think what, it, you know, people keep making the comparison to international soccer. There is that. There's also a little bit of early season college hoops here too. Mm, so yeah. this is the NBA. It's like the Maui Invitational and it is happening around the same time as the Maui Invitational. Yeah, that's, that's a good comparison there because I, I have seen a lot of the comparisons to uh, the international soccer. And I think that's what the commissioner would like, you know, the NBA league office would like that. Uh, they would like the players to take it as seriously as, you know, an FA cup or something like that. Um, but the reality is, I mean, these are kind of glorified regular season games, yeah. right? I, I will be interested to see viewership wise, if this moves the needle at all. Um, 
or if it's something that will kind of take a few years um, before it kind of catches on. I, I will say that I, I think this is like a good opportunity for like a young team, like like the Grizzlies or or like the Thunder. They they might take this more seriously than say your veteran team, you know, out in Golden State or or the Lakers, because they they are hungry. They have something to prove. So I think if a team like that goes out and and does actually treat it like a like a real competition and and goes out and wins it. That could that could be that could bode well for for the future of this type of event. Well, I think whoever wins it is going to really affect the perception of its legitimacy, right? Mm. I guarantee you, if LeBron and the Lakers win it, people will make fun of it and they'll say this, oh, it's a Mickey Mouse, whatever. Uh, but if it is one of those young teams like OKC, you'll see people start to think of it maybe as a bit of a springboard, right? Particularly if they get good after. The irony is if one of the teams glamour, one of the league's glamour teams wins it, especially if it's LeBron, it's going to be mocked into oblivion. People are going to discredit it, talk it down, uh, just like they did with the bubble, right? The bubble was going to be the purest form of hoops, you know, and, and only those who really cared about basketball and not the glamour were, were going to succeed in it. That was the narrative before the Clippers stroked in the second round, right? And then when they did, and LeBron won, all of a sudden it was Mickey Mouse, right? So we know how that's going to work. But uh, I, I think it will take a few years. Uh, I don't think it's going to fail because I, I, I do think that people will enjoy it. I think it'll expand. I don't think it's going to be just four teams in Vegas. I think it'll be all eight teams in Vegas at some point. It'll become a big thing for the league. It'll never be the playoffs. You know, it's this all or nothing nonsense that we've got. Oh, it's got to be the NBA playoffs or else it's not worth anything. There's a lot of ground between the NBA playoffs and a random night in December. Uh, and if you can elevate a random night in December into a little mini event, a third thing beyond the all-star game, beyond the playoffs that you can, you know, make people find interesting, like the summer league, it's going to be bigger than the summer league. And the summer league is a big deal in Vegas every year. It's really only for, you know, basketball junkies, but it's still a big deal every year. And so, you know, again, it's not going to be the playoffs. The ratings aren't going to be comp comparable to a playoffs or finals, but it'll do well enough that you'll see other leagues look at it. You'll see other leagues look at it. Let's move on. We got a few quick topics that uh, we want to touch on before we go here. Uh, we got the U.S. Women's Open, Wimbledon, dealer's choice here, John. Which one do you want to hit first? Let's talk about the U.S. Women's Open. No surprise here, given the elevated time slots on NBC. Uh, you know, prime time windows this year. NBC uh, giving it the kind of exposure it's not had. And being at Pebble Beach, right? Very scenic, very famous uh, course. So uh, no surprise that it was the most watched since Michelle Wee won it in 2014. Uh, you think about Michelle Wee in that 2014 if they had gotten a few more wins out of her, who knows how the ratings would have been. A little bit like Danica Patrick, if you remember how well that Daytona 500 did, the Indy 500 did too, when uh, she was contending. Uh, if you had gotten a few more wins from Michelle Wee, a few more wins from Danica Patrick, I mean, th th those are some what ifs. But, uh, you know, uh, 1.55 million on NBC uh, Sunday for a full six-hour window. So 1.55 million for women's golf for six hours. WNBA 
hasn't gotten to 1 million viewers for a single event in more than uh, 15 years. So, you know, when we talk about women's sports, we know that the popularity is not at the same level as men's sports, but, you know, there are levels to it. And I think there needs to be some consideration of women's golf being, you know, one of those sports that really pops. Viewership peaked at 2.2 million from 815 to 830. Uh, so, you know, that to me, that's a nice number. Uh, I think it's not the Annika Sorenstam era. They were getting bigger numbers when Sorenstam was around. But I, I think uh, it's uh, pretty impressive, up 76% year over year. That, that, that's really impressive. Yeah, uh, you you hit on a lot of what I was going to say, right? That there's a lot of storylines too uh, going in here. Obviously, the course was a big one, but you know you had Michelle Wee West and and Annika Sorenston playing their last competitive uh, golf tournament, uh, and both both were playing in the same group and and were cut uh, Friday evening. And but I still think that kind of built momentum for the weekend. And um, obviously, the television windows are a big deal. Uh, when you have a West Coast major like this, but um, I really think it could have it could have even been bigger had the lead not been so big down the stretch. I mean, I watched the back nine on Sunday, and I was able to watch you know Thursday and Friday coverage in the evenings, but you know the entire back nine it, it was never really in doubt, right? So there wasn't any um, close and late, as we like to say here, um, about this tournament. So. It, I think it actually had the potential to be a little bigger on Sunday. Uh, however, a great number for women's golf. Let's move on to Wimbledon. Unfortunate first few days of, of Wimbledon, getting a lot of rain delays, probably eating into some viewership for, for ESPN's early round coverage. However, uh, Saturday and Sunday, the windows seemed pretty good, although down from last year. Um what are your top line takeaways from the Wimbledon viewership? Well, you know, uh, about what you would expect. Nothing really uh, jumps out. Uh, I think Christopher Eubanks make it to the quarterfinal is a big deal. Uh, you know, Venus and Serena have had coattails that Tiger Woods never really seemed to be interested in having. And so we, we that's mostly been on the women's side. You know, Coco Goff, maybe Sloane Stevens. I suspect Sloane would have been maybe part of that group as well, kind of inspired by Venus and Serena, although Salone was she's never a little a big, older. Yeah, she's a little older, and she was never a big fan of Serena either. So I, I, that's why I'm kind of hesitant to include her on that. But, you know, certainly people like uh, Coco Goff, Naomi Osaka, et cetera, et cetera, but now Chris Eubanks as well. And, you know, I, I started watching tennis before Venus and Serena were there, and you never saw any Black people in, in tennis. I mean, yeah, Kanda Rubin was there, Malve Washington maybe, but, you know, not contending, not making a real dent, making real relevant runs. So, you know, Chris Eubanks, is, it's, you know, we saw Tiafo last year uh, at the U.S. Open. That was an electrifying run for a lot of reasons. Men's tennis, Americans men te American men's tennis, regardless of race, it's been, you know, it's been a really dreadful, uh, very long time. So it wasn't just that he's an African-American man. Just the fact that he was an American man making it to the semifinals was, was unusual, right? But uh, so Eubanks probably isn't going to be able to make it further. I mean, it's just a, a lot to ask. Once you start getting into this part of a, a, a tennis major, you're getting to the point where, you know, Cinderella turns back into a pumpkin. Mm -hmm. uh, Medvedev is not some kind of 
super dominant person, you can beat Medvedev, but you know, it, you, you have a point. This is, um, I think widely regarded as Medvedev's weakest surface. Yeah. Although I think most people probably would have said that about Eubanks as well yeah. until he won my Orca like two weeks ago. Right. Um, so this is kind of a recent surge of form for, for Christopher Eubanks as well, but Medvedev has looked beatable in, in his matches thus far. Um, he's not Djokovic. Um, he's, he's not like a grass court specialist. So um, you never know. Uh, tennis is a funny sport, you know, especially <laughs> given, you know, how Wimbledon works with the curfew and everything, depending on when the match is played, if it goes late, you know, you can split it up on multiple days. I mean, I don't think that happens uh, this late in the tournament, um, given the start times, but it's just, it's just a funny sport. And, um, you know, I wouldn't rule out an upset there. And it's just promising for, for men's professional tennis yeah. in the United States. And, and I hope that, that Eubanks and Tiafo and, Hopefully, some of the other guys like Fritz can um, kind of can really build some momentum for the sport in this country. Well, they're going to need it because you know I, I have no problem with Novak Djokovic at all, but a lot of people really don't like him, and uh, he can't be the only guy. He's also not a young guy either. So whether people take to uh, take to him or not, in five, six, seven years, he's not going to be there. Can you imagine what's going to happen to men's tennis when Djokovic is gone? If there's not a significant ramp up, right? Like right away, where we start to see other players become relevant, it's going to get really, really ugly. All right. Uh, on to probably the biggest sports media story um, in, in recent weeks, uh, albeit not on the television side, but on the print side. Uh, the New York Times deciding to axe their sports desk in, in favor of utilizing their acquisition of The Athletic to uh, fulfill their sports coverage. John, I know we don't talk about print too much on this podcast, but this seems to be like a pretty big deal. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, it, it's certainly interesting because I think a, a lot of people believe that the Times is taking advantage of the fact that the, that the athletic is not unionized, right? Uh, so um, obviously, the New York Times, it's got this big, you know, liberal reputation. It's a business, right? So as long as the business is making money, yeah, it's only going to be as liberal as it needs to be, Right. So, uh, you know, that, that doesn't surprise me that they would kind of uh, take advantage of the fact that they've got this non-unionized publication that uh, is obviously more associated with sports than the New York Times. Because, I mean, it makes some sense. You can't have your own sports section and also the athletic, and they're not fully integrated. You know, it, it was kind of a bit of a weird thing. But then again, why buy the athletic to begin with? Uh, so. Look, the reality of the matter is that times are not great in sports media, whether you are in TV where, you know, people are getting laid off every five minutes or in uh, print. Uh, you know, it's just not a great time. Um, and I don't necessarily see, I mean, there's not going to be some kind of gold rush where all of a sudden there's great jobs in sports media again. I mean, that's just not going to happen. The ratings are better than anything else on TV, but they're still going down. 
The only reason why it's not a problem is because of the economics of TV, where it doesn't really matter what the actual number is. It only matters what it is in comparison to everything else, right? And until you can monetize sitting on your, you know, your couch scrolling through TikTok, the way that you can monetize watching TV, then even a record low audience is still going to make money. But the fact of the matter is, as viewership declines, everything outside of the games themselves is going to be affected by that decreasing popularity. So you'll see people cutting corners, doing everything that they can to spend less money on content and things like The Athletic that you know you don't have to deal with labor. Uh, they're going to have a leg up on something like The Times sports section, which goes back you know, to the very beginning of, uh, of sports media. So that's just the way that it is. And there's really no end, end point in sight to that. Um, the, the acquisition of the athletic is kind of mesmerizing given how much they paid for it. I mean, half a billion dollars for a print publication in, in this environment um, seems like a lot, but I mean, I don't know, man, <laughs> maybe, maybe it is possible to, to turn a profit um, with, with a subscription-based, you know, kind of premium sports writing outlet. Um, but, you know, the, I've been an athletic subscriber for probably five or six years now. And, you know, it's changed a lot. You know, there's less content. It's less local. So, you know, the teams that I used to be following, you know, some of them don't have beat writers anymore on the athletic so you really have to be into the more prestige, enterprise, long-form pieces to really get your money's worth. Otherwise, it's just kind of, you know, your typical, here are the odds for the upcoming slate of NBA games tonight. Or, you know, here's the gamer from, from you know, last night's MLB game, even though they're, they're doing less and less of that too. So uh, it, it's a really interesting time for the athletic as well. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's not a great time to be doing anything in sports except for playing or owning the teams, right? You know, all that Clay Travis nonsense, all that insanity, right? Uh, it, it obscures the reality of what's going on here. The only people who are not going to go broke are the players and the owners, right? They're the only ones who aren't going to go broke. Everybody else is going to go broke. The only people who are safe are the ones who were kneeling in the bubble back in 2020. That's the irony of all this uh, Clay Travis, you know, BS. Uh, the reality of the matter is, if you're a player or you're an owner, the money's going to keep coming in. Those TV deals are going to keep making money. Uh, if you're anybody else, including someone covering those games, like Jeff Van Gundy, well, you know, you're on you're on quicksand. The, the truth is, I, I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that, you know, sports media is a bit of an oversaturated yeah. um, space, but, you know, it is also a symbiotic relationship, right? Where if there wasn't a large media presence around surrounding sports, you know, there wouldn't, it, they wouldn't be as popular as they are. So um, it's kind of just about finding that equilibrium and, and clearly uh, right now it's, it's in a bit of a, retraction well um, i mean how does it how does it go back right you know th this isn't a temporary condition this is terminal this is terminal for everybody who works in media not just sports media you know the actors are going to go on strike right probably right okay 
see you later. I mean, you know, the, the fact of the matter is there's no room anymore for people in media, right? So I, I don't think the writers or the actors are going to have a good time in this strike. They're going to end up, you know, losing a year of work and having little to show for it, right? Because there's there's no leverage anymore. If you create things for a living that have a standard, right? Not just a TikTok video, but things that require maybe even getting a degree to figure out how to do, right? It's going to be bad times for you going forward. Uh, I, I don't know. I just don't know how it turns around. It's just really hard to find a way to make the creation of content, the creation of quality content that requires money and resources to create. It's just hard to make that profitable. And as, as long as that's the case, it's going to be really hard for people to maintain jobs in, in, in the entertainment and media space. I, I will say, I, I think the demand for entertainment is still very high, as high as it's ever been. But you're right in that it's just completely fragmented. The monetization structures are really uncertain, especially when you get to, you know, short form video like TikTok. And it doesn't really bode well for live, right? Um, sports, news, whatever. Um, that, you know, that's not how people are consuming their entertainment these days. So I, I don't think it's as dire as you make it out to be because people will always want to be entertained. That's not something that's going to change in 10, 20, 30 years. It's just going to look different and, and it's going to be structured differently. Well, what I think will happen is that people will still be employed. It's just not going to be good jobs. It's not going to be union jobs. It's not going to be high paying uh, people. You know, there'll still be tons of people working in sports, but they're not going to work in sports in the same way that they did. All right, John, why don't you uh, close this one out and uh, tee us up for next week? All right. Uh, we'll be back next week with more sports media talk. The MLB All-Star Game is tonight. We'll talk about the ratings for that next week briefly. Like I said, I'm expecting a record low. WNBA All-Star Game is Saturday night in primetime on ABC. You know, before the season started, I said I thought the WNBA would get to a million viewers this season for a game. And I'm not sure anymore. The All-Star Game might be their best bet. So we'll see what the numbers are for that and talk about that next week. But uh, for now, we're going to sign off for Drew. This is John saying we'll see you next week.